I am a critical care physician. I am a specialist in critical care medicine. In the industry, we are known as intensivist, but that sounds like too much of a personality trait to me. So I prefer to refer to myself as a critical care specialist. 20 years ago in 1996, I graduated from medical school. I was a finely tuned product of a well-oiled machine called conventional medicine that is designed to produce body mechanics who are capable of diagnosing and treating disease. And I was prepared for that. But I was not prepared for meeting Samuel. When I met Samuel, I was an intern, the lowest person on the totem pole. And there's a distinct hierarchy when you're in training for medical school. You start as the intern, you progress to being a resident, you become a fellow, an attending, but the job of the intern is to admit patients to the hospital to your service. So I admitted Samuel to our medicine service with belly pain. We soon discovered that Samuel had a bowel obstruction, an obstruction of the gut. And typically when that happens, you can just start an IV, give them some bowel rest, and it will resolve. But Samuel's gut did not improve. His belly pain worsened. And we did a CAT scan which showed that he had twisted bowel that would need surgery. His bowel was strangulated and it was under attack from loss of oxygen. So I went back and told Samuel, hey, this is not just a simple bowel obstruction. You're going to need surgery. And he said, oh no, I will never do that again. Because the last time I did surgery on me, I saw the whole thing. I saw them cut me open. I saw my guts laid out. So you will never do surgery on me again. I didn't know what to say. My immediate thought was, did something go wrong with anesthesia? But then I thought, if, he, if something went wrong with anesthesia, he would have felt pain. So I asked him, well, did you feel pain? He said, no, I didn't feel any pain, but I saw everything. So I will never do that again. Being a new intern, I thought, well, you know, I know a lot. I just graduated from medical school, so I know a thing or two, but I don't know everything. So my immediate left brain thought was, this is probably something I haven't heard of yet. It's probably a psychiatric fugue state or some phenomenon that I am just not aware of. So I went to my resident physician and I said, hey, Samuel said he won't do surgery again because the last time he did, he saw his surgery from above. And I will never forget the look the resident gave me. I could see him trying to come up with a response and he finally said, Whatever you tell our attending physician on rounds tomorrow morning, I wouldn't say that. And that was my first introduction into how unsafe it can be to talk about phenomenon that don't neatly fall into our understanding of medicine. But I was confused and I was intrigued. So I went down to medical records and back in that day, we didn't have electronic medical records. We barely had computers and it was still MS-DOS. So I came up with a pile of manila folders, and what I was looking for was the anesthesiologist report because I knew that the anesthesiology report would record any signs of physiological distress during surgery, and it should be bland. 
the heart rate should be normal, the blood pressure should be normal, any signs that you're coming out of consciousness, you'll see agitation. So that's what I was looking for. Because what I knew about surgery, and those of you who are in the room who are involved in the medical field will know that when you go into a surgical arena, the sterile part of the body where the surgery is happening is separated by a curtain. And behind that curtain is the head of the patient where they're connected to the ventilator. And at the head of the patient, the anesthesiologist sits and records these vital signs. So there's no physical way that Samuel should have been able to see his surgery that he claimed that he did. So when I got to the anesthesiologist's report, it was as bland as I'd expected it to be. Heart rate was normal. Blood pressure was normal. There was no indication that Samuel should have been aware of his surgery. Samuel continued to refuse his surgery. His family supported him in his decision. We made him comfortable. And unfortunately, he passed. He died from his disease. And that stuck with me because I thought there's a failure on my part to not be able to completely understand what happened to Samuel. And by not understanding it, I am unable to help him understand a fear that informed his choice to die rather than to undergo a traumatic experience. But I was quickly pulled back into the an intense world of left brain medicine. And although Samuel never left me, I was quickly pulled back into completing my training over the next five years toward becoming an intensive care physician. And I made an unconscious choice not to pursue it at that time, but it would come back to revisit me 10 years later when I met Kyle. Now, one of the intensive care units that I work in, I work in two, uh, one of them is a trauma unit. So anybody who comes in with, with severe trauma, um, we uh, take care of them in our intensive care unit. Now, Kyle was very young. He was late 20s and very fit, very sporty, into um, all of the outdoor activities that uh, many young men of his age group enjoy. And up in my neck of the woods in the upper Midwest, we have a lot of lakes and rivers left over from glacial melt, and they're perfect for outdoor recreation. And on one of these waterways, now there are two versions to this story, our version and Kyle's version. And in our version, based on witnesses, Kyle is parasailing behind a boat on one of these waterways, just really enjoying the lift and the pull. When man brain sets in, as he looks down and sees two bikini-clad women on the hull of a boat. Flirting began, and as he circled back around, one of the nurses, one of the uh, ladies on the boat made a bad decision, and she flashed him. Man brain went into overdrive, and he l stopped paying attention to his parasail, and unfortunately, he drifted off to the bank near some utility wires and became tangled. He wasn't appropriately harnessed, and he fell. And the utility wires were pretty high up, and so he fell with a lot of force and hit the water, losing heartbeat, losing breath, and he began to sink below the water. And the two ladies were nearest to him, became horrified. They became his rescuers. They pulled him out of the boat, 
and fortunately out of the water onto the boat, and fortunately for Kyle, one of them was a nurse. She felt that there was no pulse. She began doing CPR. She resuscitated him. She became his rescuer. Kyle's version. I was floating up in the air. I was having a good time when I noticed these two babes hanging out on a boat. I caught some wind and I started floating up and I thought, this is great. I've never been this high before. And then I happened to look down and see this guy falling down toward the water and he was quite a ways up and I thought, this is not gonna be good. And I watched him hit the water. But then the next thing I know, I'm laying on the hull of the boat, staring up into the faces of these two babes. And I feel kind of floaty. And I can only imagine that at this point, Kyle heard celestial music of the Sports Illustrated type. <laughs> but it was not lost on him. Kyle knew that something unusual had happened, and it transformed him, and he would tell anyone who would listen. He was totally void of the fear of death because he knew that he had been separated from his body. He had watched himself drowned, and he said, I am not afraid to die, especially if it means diving headfirst into a bunch of bikini-clad women. <laughs> Two years later, I was called to the ICU at the other campus where I work, because Howard was trying to die. He was in cardiac arrest, and when I arrived in the room, they were doing chest compressions and had already started the process of giving medications we know can resuscitate the heart. Howard had been in uh, an elective patient for surgery, but unfortunately he was a heavy drinker. And because he started going through very vigorous alcohol withdrawal, we were not able to remove the ventilator and the technologies that we use to support patients right away. Now, one of the things that we know about everyday heavy drinkers is that sometimes magnesium levels can be quite low. And it's not always represented well in the blood work. It can actually be lower than it appears on your labs. But one of the things that can happen with a low magnesium level is that you can have a cardiac arrest. And that's what had happened to Howard. So we were doing chest compressions on him. He survived. And days later, whenever we were able to remove the ventilator and um, allow him to talk to us, he told us an incredible story. He told us a story of us working on him and him seeing it all from above. Now, one of the things that he noted um, was the fact that I was wearing a very green shirt that day. And that was interesting to him because that was his first cue that something was out of the ordinary. He remembers a bright color of green and he locked in on it. And because he locked in on that color, he locked in on me. And because he locked in on me, he was able to tell me about me, doing chest compressions on him, giving him medication, and so many incredible details of his resuscitation. He was also able to tell us some of the things that had happened that were kind of humorous. You get the impression watching television that sometimes um, cardiac resuscitations or the, the codes that we use to resuscitate people are very hectic and chaotic, and that's typically not the case. In the, attention ca in the intensive care unit, and particularly in Howard's case, we had um, plenty of time to resuscitate him and to give him the magnesium and watch him come back to life. So it was very controlled. And at one point, when I saw that he was stabilizing, I took my stethoscope out of my pocket and prepared to listen to him. Now the nice thing about 
lab coats is that they have pockets and you can put a lot of things in those pockets and because they're there and it's an opportunity, we do tend to fill them. And I had pens, granola bars, tea bags, along with my stethoscope. So when I pulled my stethoscope out of my pocket, everything came flying out. Everything that was tangled up with it. Pins came flying out, granola bars, tea bags. And Howard told me this. He said, there was so much stuff in that pocket, I thought a frog was gonna come out next. <laughs> but I was intrigued. Samuel, Kyle, and now Howard. I was really curious, and I wanted to know more. So I gave it a lot of thought. If these people are telling me about their experiences unsolicited, how many times is it happening that I don't know about because I don't ask? So I came up with an idea of posing a very benign question, something that wasn't threatening, something that was neutral, so that if something happened, they would perceive it as an invitation to talk, and if nothing had happened, it didn't seem out of the ordinary. So I came up with the unusual question. I would ask patients who had had what would seem like the perfect recipe to have a near-death experience. After they recovered from their cardiac arrest, I would ask, did anything unusual happen when you died? Did anything unusual happen whenever you experienced cardiac death, when your heart stopped? The first time I asked that question was to Cora. Cora had come in from her home where her heart had stopped beating, her husband had called 911, and she was resuscitated. And when she had recovered, and I was able to talk with her, I said, did anything unusual happen when you experienced your cardiac arrest? And she said, no, and I was so disappointed. <laughs> it turns out that Cora was well-versed in near-death experiences. She had read a lot about them. She read a lot about metaphysical phenomenon. So when she woke up and found that she had had a cardiac arrest and nothing had happened, she felt a bit cheated. But we talked about it. And we came to the same conclusion, that perhaps she didn't need the experience. She didn't need that moment where her reality is ripped apart and she's invited to consider other possibilities. The second time I asked that question was to Diane, who, like Cora, had had a cardiac arrest. And when she recovered to the point that I could ask her, Diane, did anything unusual happen when your heart stopped? I could see her face crumple, and she started to sob. And she explained to me how 10 years ago, 10 years before her cardiac arrest, she had actually been in a terrible car accident and had experienced severe head trauma. And after this head trauma, she recalled to her doctors and her family a very detailed near-death experience where she had actually died. She was aware that she had passed, she met a very loving being who told her that she would have to return. And when she returned, one thing that Diane found is that she had some abilities before that she didn't have. She was very intuitive, and she would be able to, um, to tell if someone was going to die. She'd be able to tell if someone was going to be in an accident. And she was very vocal about this, but her family was very uncomfortable. It didn't fit their belief system very well at all. And so they put a lot of pressure on her to shut down. Her abilities didn't stop, but her sharing them did. So when she had her cardiac arrest, and I asked her, did anything unusual happen? She told me it had. 
that she had met with that same benevolent being that she had 10 years earlier. And it was incredibly reassuring to her. But she had fear that this experience that had been, meant so much to her would not be able to be shared and that she would have to contain it. So Diane needed the question. She needed me to ask. She needed me to provide a safe space for her to share her experience. I've asked the question a lot over the years. I've asked it so much, in fact, that I'm beginning to wonder if it follows me spontaneously as an unspoken question that hangs there. I think the energy of it is with me now because I notice more than ever people will spontaneously tell me their experiences without me asking the question. This happened when I met Henry. Henry was a man who had severe emphysema. And he had an attack of his emphysema in his home. His son found him unbreathing, quite dusky, and there was no way to know how long he had been down. And for lack of oxygen, time is brain. And the sooner you can restore oxygen, the greater chance you have of retaining brain function. The longer you go, beyond two, three, five minutes, the more chance there is of brain damage. And we knew that Howard had been down for at least, uh, Henry had been down for at least 20 minutes. But when he was resuscitated, he seemed to be all there. He seemed to be perfectly intact. And when I walked in to see him one day, he spontaneously said to me, I saw my brother. I was in a very literal state of mind at the time, and my instinct was to turn around and look behind me, thinking that he had seen his brother walked by. He saw my confusion. He said, no, you don't understand. When I died, I saw my brother. I was all in. I pulled up a chair, sat down beside his bed, and I said, tell me. So he shared with me a story of how he and his brother had been incredibly close. And some years earlier, his brother had died tragically and unexpectedly. And he had carried that burden of loneliness and heart sickness of being separated from someone that he loved so dearly. And because he struggled with his disease and living day to day was not easy for him, when he died and he saw his brother, he was relieved. But that relief was short-lived when his brother said, you can't stay here. You have to go back. You still have work to do. That was very disappointing to Henry that he had to come back. But at the same time, it was very reassuring because he had that transformative moment when he understood that he survives death. Another account where someone spontaneously shared something incredibly rich with me was when I met Chester. Chester was in our cardiac intensive care unit, and he was having a hard time staying in a normal rhythm. We were using our medications, we were using our technology, but every time we would lighten sedation, he would have what we would call a ventricular storm. And his heart would beat out of control. It would not stay in a normal rhythm. This happened to him four times. So over the course of his complex hospital stay, he had four confirmed cardiac deaths where we would have to shock him multiple times, let him soak in medication to try to restore normal rhythm. When we finally had stability and we were able to wake him up, he told us something incredibly intriguing. It only took one cardiac death for him to realize that he could go out of his body. And he took advantage of that because it was pretty boring laying in bed. 
as I can imagine. So he told us a very intriguing experience of only being loosely tied to his body in subsequent cardiac arrests. And while he didn't have necessarily a threshold experience of crossing over, seeing a tunnel, a bright light, or connecting with loving beings, he still had this experience of being able, in his perception, to get up and walk around. When he recovered, what he also noted is that he was able to hear conversations over distance, particularly with those uh, with whom he had a very strong heart connection, like his family. He described an incident where his uh, grandson was playing with a toy train in the waiting room that his daughter had purchased for him on that very day. And so when he shared that with his family, they just looked at him with disbelief. There was no way that he could have known about this toy train except to have seen it from outside of his physical body. Because from the moment that he woke up and was telling us that story, he had not left the ICU. Another thing that Chester noted is that he had heightened physical sensory awareness. He was able to see. He didn't need his glasses. He was able to hear. He didn't need his hearing aids. And that was something that was noteworthy to all of us. But that, that ability to see with such clarity and hear with such perfection slowly faded over about three to four weeks. And he was trying to hold on to it because it was nice to not be connected to those devices that he was so dependent on for so many years. But the really cool thing is that this experience transformed not only Chester, but his wife and his daughter and propelled them on a journey to seek answers and to start a very uh, intriguing spiritual exploration. It had served its purpose. You know, usually whenever people have um, unusual things happen to them during severe illness or trauma, they can usually put two and two together and figure out, wait a minute, something odd is happening here. I see my body down there. Or something unusual happened. I just saw my grandmother who passed away years ago. They can usually put it together. And that is easier to negotiate with when you're trying to help them understand what happened to them and, and help them understand what it meant to them. It's a little bit more difficult if something unusual happens and you recognize it, but the patient doesn't. That happened with Carol. Carol was very sick with a process that we call septic shock. And in septic shock, you get a bacterial infection in your bloodstream, and under the burden of the chemicals that the bacteria releases and the chemicals that your body releases in trying to heal this, you can get organ damage. All of your normal body function is essentially taken offline, and you become incredibly dependent on our medications and our technology to keep you alive. But if you can interact early enough, intervene early enough, you usually survive. So we knew that Carol would survive. Every day, there were signs that she was getting better. She had kidney damage. And one of the signs that kidneys are getting better is that they try to get back online and they produce a lot of urine. They kind of overdo it. And so you will have a lot of urine coming into the bag, and that's kind of a sign that, you know, things are probably looking up. When we were finally able to wake Carol up and take her off the ventilator, she was mad. She was furious. She told us, I had to go to the bathroom. I kept trying to tell the nurse I had to go to the bathroom, and she just ignored me. And I know she could hear me because she was standing right there working on the computer on the wall, and every time I said, hey, I have to go to the bathroom, 
She would just pretend like she didn't hear me. When she turned around and listened to me with her stethoscope and she was just this far from my face, I said, lady, I have to go to the bathroom, and she ignored me. So I thought to myself, this is Carol speaking, I'll take the matters into my own hands and I'll go look for the bathroom myself. So I got out of bed and I started walking around looking for the bathroom and you apparently don't have any bathrooms here in the ICU. So I asked the secretary, and this is where it got interesting, because the secretary that she described perfectly, who also apparently ignored her request for the bathroom, was not working on the day that Carol woke up. In fact, she only worked part-time, and she had worked two days before, the day that Carol happened to be producing a lot of urine. She described Meg as a very petite lady with spiky blonde hair and dark roots. Meg was not working that day. But a Meg apparently ignored her too. So Carol said, I decided to go looking for the bathroom myself. So I went out into the hall through the hydraulic doors, by the way, and I wanted to ask her, did you open the doors or go through them? But it didn't seem appropriate. Carol looked around for a bathroom, got frustrated and said, fine, I'll just go back to bed. I'll use the bathroom and they'll have to clean it up. That's what they get for ignoring me. So the nurse and I were in there listening to her and we had an idea of what might have happened. We realized that she didn't have that uh, context. So I tried to explain to her or suggested to her that perhaps she'd had an experience um, of consciousness. Perhaps she'd had an experience where her physical body had been separated uh, where her um, body had, uh, consciousness had been separated from her physical body, and she was able to get out and, and move. But that didn't fly with Carol. She just looked at me like it was, uh, I was dumb. <laughs> um, she was fairly convinced that we were very rude, and she said that she wanted to write a report. She wanted to file a complaint, and she did. She filed a complaint, putting pen to paper to tell us how inattentive and bad we were for not showing her where the bathroom was. Now, I know the nurse manager very well, and she and I have had, over the past 15 years, lots of interesting discussions about uh, things that can happen that don't fit neatly into our preconceived notions of physical reality. And she came to me with this report, and she said, I knew this could only be your patient, Lauren. <laughs> In the medical community, there is still a lot of reserve to embrace the reality that something beyond our physical existence happens. But we also see that resistance with family members. Helen was in a very bad car accident. She was so entangled in her car with broken ankles that she had to be extricated from her car. But Helen tells a story of getting out of her car and walking around the accident scene to check on the other people involved in the accident and make sure they're okay. So she gets out of the car and walks around and at some point she hears a siren and she said, well, I better go back to my own car so they can take care of all of us. And she turns around and sees her car and sees herself unconscious in the car, trapped and unable to get out. And then it hits her, wait a minute. If I'm in the car trapped and not moving, how am I able to get up and walk around and be aware of this experience? So when she woke up, 
and was taken off the ventilator and able to tell us what happened to her, she was excited. She said, you'll never believe what happened to me. I saw myself in the car. And those of us who are starting to become more aware were really excited. And we were able to share her intrigue and share her joy and share her excitement, but her kids were upset. I saw Helen in follow-up and her kids came with her to follow-up and I could tell by their body language and facial expressions that they had an agenda. So they told me, my mother's been telling this crazy story of how with broken ankles, she got out of the car and was able to walk around and see herself. Now that didn't happen. So it became clear to me that they wanted me to set her straight about what had happened. What I thought, but I didn't say, is that if you want me to set her straight, you pick the wrong doctor. <laughs> if you want me to set her straight about something that she believes firmly happened, that you feel didn't happen, I can't do that. So I thought about how I can move forward to help facilitate a conversation that helps this family. Because at that point, it wasn't about me saying, hey, this stuff exists whether you believe in it or not, deal with it. That's not the point and it doesn't help them. We eventually arrived at a consensus where I said, listen, your mom experienced something that seems very important to her. She can't prove to you that it happened. You can't prove that it didn't happen. So can we agree on a middle ground where we honor her truth and let her keep that experience? And they were okay with that. Another similar experience where families were just very resistant about the potential for something else to exist outside of physical reality was when I met Sandy. Sandy was driving down a deserted road and she came around a corner and was unable to stop in time before hitting a herd of deer. She hit the deer with such force that her car was flipped, she was thrown from the car and she landed in some bushes, which is pretty remarkable. I mean, there was dense growth and undergrowth along the side of the road and that's where she landed. Now what's interesting about Sandy is she didn't completely lose consciousness. She was aware of the process. She was aware of hitting the deer. She remembered being thrown um, from the car. Usually when someone experiences trauma or a, due to a severe accident, there tends to be this protective veil of forgetfulness and most people won't really remember the crash. They'll say, the last thing I remember is hitting the brakes or the last thing I remember is something coming at me. But she remained conscious through the whole thing. And what's interesting about that is that while she was conscious, she was aware of seeing a woman approach from a distance. Her immediate thought is help is coming. That was quickly replaced by recognition when she saw that the woman coming toward her was her mother who had passed some years before. This is, was incredible for her. She's sobbing and she's trying to register what might be happening. And she has this thought, am I dead? I don't feel dead because I feel these bushes. I'm aware of how uncomfortable it is to be stuck here and unable to move. Ambulances arrive. Her mother doesn't touch her. Her mother doesn't see her. Doesn't say any, her mother doesn't say anything. And then as she's being moved to the ambulance, she slowly recedes. 
So when Sandy wakes up and tells us about this, she's emotional. She realized that the, realizes this is a big deal and it's transformative for her because in that moment she realized, she understands she will see her mother again. Her son was furious. Stop talking nonsense. That didn't happen. You didn't see grandma. Knock it off. So this was an ongoing conversation over several days. Some of them I witnessed and perhaps some of them I didn't. And at one point, I had a chance to talk to her son outside of the room and ask him to help me understand why this was so unsettling for him. The discussion went on and I, I, I asked him, what is the most important thing here? That my mom stopped talking nonsense, that's the most important thing. I rephrased the question, what's the most important thing here? That my mom get better. That's the most important thing to me, is that my mom get better. And I said, what if part of her getting better is being allowed to have her truth about something that she believes strongly happened, something that we can't prove did or did not happen? And he thought about that. And I realized that one of the biggest things that was responsible for his opposition was not necessarily the fact that she was saying something that he had a hard time reconciling, but he was concerned about what that might mean, that perhaps she had been damaged in some way, perhaps that the mother he knew before was somehow lost to him. And once her experience could somehow be normalized, he asked me, have you ever heard of this before? And I was able to tell him, fortunately, I was able to tell him that yes, I had. And normalizing that experience for him, taking away that fear that his mother was somehow damaged, let her keep her truth and introduced one to him as well. When you're learning a language, the more you speak it, the more fluent you become. And the more fluent you become, the better able you are to recognize novel words and their meaning without knowing what the word means exactly. You can understand the meaning of a new word by the context of the words and sentences around it. And you can understand the new word's meaning sometimes by the intonation of the person and the facial expressions of the person telling you that word. And I sometimes wonder if that's the way it is with near-death experiences and other experiences of consciousness phenomenon along that spectrum. And as we increase our fluency in understanding near-death experiences, how does that open up the door for us to recognize other things that don't fit neatly into our understanding of what's going on, the way that we understand it now? I began to think about this when I met Warren. Warren was a man who knew he had cancer before he actually had cancer. He was lying in bed one morning, and he was awake, but he was dreaming, or he thought he was. Lying there awake with his eyes closed, fully aware of his surroundings, he became aware of this image that was coming into form. And the image was pulsating. And there was something pipe-like and linear running through it. And he didn't know what he was seeing. But incredibly, Warren says that at some point, this image began to talk to him and said, Warren, I'm your cancer. What are you going to do about it? That was so out of his context. Warren was a very straightforward man, a blue-collar worker. 
in one of our local paper mills, no medical background, but he did have some artistic ability. So he grabbed some paper, started drawing what he had seen, called his doctor and he said, I, I think I have cancer. I need a workup. Fortunately, his primary care doctor took him seriously and they started an evaluation that soon revealed that Warren had a mass in the right side of his chest wrapped around his pulmonary artery that was pulsating. When he was going over the CAT scans with his doctor, he pulled out his drawing and showed his oncologist. And there was uncanny similarity between what he had drawn and what was visible on the CAT scan. At some point, Warren realized that he had, he had a say-so. He entered into dialogue with his cancer, and at every stage, he would draw it. And this was not a friendly cancer. Anyone in this room who has any background in oncology will recognize that when I say large cell lung cancer, that's usually a very quickly fatal disease. It doesn't always respond well to therapy. But under the, um, in the context of treatment, his cancer did start to shrink. But Warren felt like in the context of conversation, his cancer started to shrink. And he began to have this understanding walking so near death with his cancer that it was there to teach him something. So over the course of many months that his cancer went into remission, where it remains to this day, by the way, he was transformed. He was transformed with the residual effect being some of the takeaways that people experience with spontaneous near-death experiences. He no longer had a fear of death. He had a sense of purpose, altruism, a sense of introspection and connecting to the spiritual part of himself to say, what am I here for? If I survive this, what am I to do? So it made me wonder, does a near-death experience have to occur during a shocking event to our physiology? Or is it something that can happen as you are walking near death over weeks, months, or years? Fluency allows us to answer that question. Fluency and understanding conscious phenomena allows us to be open to the possibility that these transformative events don't necessarily need to happen like that. Warren was transformed from the inside. That transformation continues to exude to the outside and informs how he lives his life. In the medical community, it can sometimes be kind of closed around things that we don't understand, and those of us who are in the medical field live that. And we can understand how it can be unsafe professionally unsafe to talk about such phenomenon. So it's really interesting to, to have a doctor as a patient. It's very illuminating. It's even more illuminating when you have a doctor who's had a near-death experience. And that was the case when I met Dr. John. Dr. John, in his later years, long retired, had developed colon cancer. By the time it was discovered, it was inoperable and it had spread. And Dr. John was a realist. And being 
in his eighth decade, he made a decision not to accept treatment because he had seen how um, chemotherapy could ravage the body and he decided he wanted to be comfortable and let nature take its course. I had been consulted to participate in his care when he had some respiratory difficulties from the spread of his cancer. One day when I walked in, I was surprised to find Dr. John alone in his room because typically he had been surrounded by a lot of family. He seemed to be resting, so I asked him if I should come back later, and he said, no, no, come on in. And in fact, I want to talk to you about something. Dr. John told me about not one death, but two that he had experienced when he was a World War II medical doctor. He explained to me how he had gone out uh, to a triage area with some of his colleagues and um, the, they, became, they came under mortar fire and um, some, of the, some of his colleagues were killed and Dr. John was badly damaged. He uh, was rushed to the operating arena and he describes that it didn't take long for him to realize that he was looking at his body from above and watching his colleagues trying to save his life. He was able to hear the head surgeon express intense frustration when he felt like he was losing the battle. He was able to watch them put him back together. And he, in his disembodied state, was confused because this didn't fit what he had been taught. He didn't know if he was dying, he didn't know what was happening, but he described slowly becoming less aware of what was going on with his body below and gradually more aware of this cloud of total peace that enveloped him. He described flashing lights moving all around him and he just felt totally embraced and loved, at peace, no pain, and total removal of the fear of death. He was recovering in the ward after his surgery, trying to make sense of this. And the conclusion that he finally settled on is that he must be crazy. Because he had never heard of anything like that, he had never been taught about anything like that, and he was afraid that something damaging had happened to him that had caused him to um, perceive himself outside of his body. What a sad conclusion to arrive at because what came out of that is he had worked so hard to obtain his medical degree, to build a career, he didn't want it threatened, so he didn't say a word. And this happened to him twice, where he rose up out of his body, felt that intense love, and floated back down. And what a shame to have had such a transformative, intense feeling of eternal love, and to come out of it thinking you're crazy. But that's the context of medical training, certainly at the time, and unfortunately, to some extent, today. When I wrote my book, Near Death in the ICU, I'll be honest with you, I was a little nervous. So when I wrote it, I just kind of quietly floated it out there, and my genuine hope is that nobody I worked with would read it. <laughs> but like catching fire, once one person read about it, it rippled through the organization and many people read it. One of our doctors, who is an imposing figure, has a very strong personality, found me in the ICU one day 
and he's standing there blocking the entryway to the alcove where I work. And deadpanned, I read your book. The only thing I could say was, oh yeah? <laughs> that kind of leaves the door open for whatever comes next without any commitment on my part. And I want to thank you, he said. And he told me about a near-death experience he had had whenever he was quite young and had almost drowned. He told about feeling himself sink to the bottom and beyond the fear, totally letting go and rising up and being able to see his body. And then he remembers being on the shoreline, being resuscitated. And he said, I've never felt comfortable talking about it because I didn't feel safe. And so he thanked me for having the courage to say something. So after my initial response of writing a book that I felt like my soul demanded, and that feeling of, I want to write it, but I don't want anybody to read it, all went away. When I saw that this man that we all know and respect, and would be the last person that I would think would come forward and share something like that, meant so much to me. But it also told me that perhaps medical transformation is an inside job. Perhaps it's a conversation that we need to be having at the bedside with our colleagues that slowly transforms how we view medicine. So how do we move forward? What is our path forward? You know, we're in the, those of us gathered here are in the business of trying to understand the near-death experience. And good science demands that we try to understand patterns, try to understand commonalities, try to understand features, the reproducible things. But the danger with that comes when we try to over-categorize and over-homogenize an experience that is so uniquely human, because none of us are alike. We're all unique. You and I could go to a, a theater together. We could see two different movies, even though we're sitting right beside each other, staring at the same screen. Not because of what the movie is, but because of who we are. Because of all of our history, all of our personality, our unique makeup that makes us us and allows us to perceive the very same thing in a different way so individualized. That kind of principle became apparent to me when in asking the unusual question, I've noticed over the past couple of years that when someone does have a glimmer of something that could be interpreted as a near-death experiences, they judge it themselves. When I say, did anything unusual happen? Sometimes patients will say, well, I only felt like a sense of universal love and peace and death was removed, fear of death. But I didn't have the white light experience. I didn't go through a tunnel. There was no life review. So no, I didn't have a near-death experience. That's unfortunate. It's exciting that the conversation is reaching the level of, of public awareness. But what we need to avoid is dogmatizing the experience so that those who do have it 
qualify their own experience in such a way that diminishes their ability to take the most important thing from it, and that is that experience of total transformation from something that happened. So my response to that is, I, as your doctor, am telling you, you clinically died. You, as a patient, are telling me you had this amazing experience of unconditional love and the removal of fear of death. You, my friend, had a near-death experience. So as we move forward, all of us, the invitation is to continue to be intellectually critical, to understand the phenomenon, but to have an open heart to the possibility that the near-death experience, the out-of-body experience during severe physical stress, and everything else that we have yet to learn about is all possible, because we don't know the whole story yet. Thank you. We'll take some questions. Okay. Um, I'm Robert Mays. I know. Hi. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wonder if you could uh, share the story of the cancer patient and her son who she didn't want to have visit him, her, in the hospital. Sure. I'd be happy to. Um, speaking of being open, to all of the possibilities along the spectrum of consciousness. What Robert's referring to is a patient who was dying that didn't want to have contact with her son who many years earlier had caused her and her husband tremendous pain. He had um, done something to them financially that left them rel relatively devastated and uh, it caused a rift in their relationship. When she was dying, her son wanted reconciliation, but she didn't. And he was sitting in a bar near the hospital, devastated that his mother wouldn't visit him. And he looks up and sees his mother in the bar. The only problem is that his mother at this point in her disease is so emaciated and weak from her cancer that she can't walk. And the bar was crowded, and whenever the path cleared, she wasn't there again. Unfortunately, she passed away without that reconciliation. But the takeaway is that the power of that moment, of him seeing his mother there, though not physically there, is that he and his siblings were able to talk about it and have a transformative experience around that that offered healing and suggested to him that even though she wasn't in her physical body, that there was the potential for them to have some healing on another level. Is that the story you're talking about? And my name is Marjorie Woolacott, and I'm a neuroscientist who is now interested in near-death experiences. Great. And I, I think my question is that I loved all of the stories that you told us, and I'm also very much intrigued by the research people are beginning to do really prospectively looking at what we can say about this scientifically 
to really ask those questions you're talking <laughs> about. Um, is this real? Are there two really different realities, or can we make it into one integrated reality? So are you doing anything like that right now? Um, and can you say a little bit more about that? Because I think it's true that it's not just NDEs, but it's also, for example, cancer and other events mm -hmm. like that, mm -hmm. that I feel we need to be looking at as well to try to really bring a new integration into our understanding of consciousness. I'm not a scientist, I'm an observer. And I am direct, I'm involved in 100% inpatient care and, and to some extent administration. I'm the medical director of our ICUs. And to answer your question, my involvement in near-death experiences focus very, focuses very much on the relationship between patients and their caregivers. And I, I emphasize that we recognize that something unusual is happening. But is it that thing that's the most important thing here, or is it how we respond around it? What value do we offer the patient for that life-changing um, event that they had? So in my work, I'm not involved in that, uh, but I think what I do is pretty important in, in being able to elevate the conversation and say, you know, there's something here that we know is unusual, and, and people much smarter than me are studying it. But what we can take away, what I can offer, is to say, let's respect your experience and help you get as much out of it as you can to integrate it into you to help heal you. Thank you. Thank you. Hi, <clears throat> I'm Lee Whitting. I'm a chaplain at a uh, hospital I work with in the ICU and tr with trauma patients and palliative care. And uh, like you, I always ask when someone's coded, uh, well, I, my, my question is always, um, well, did you see anything when you were on the other side? Which as a chaplain, I can get away with. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm wondering, in your hospital or in your work, have you found um, support from the chaplaincy? Mm -hmm. uh, and also, um, have you um, dialogued with many of the other doctors about this, I, I know the one who appreciated your book so much because he'd had an experience, but I find still many doctors doubt that this is a, a reality. I have a, we have a strong relationship with our chaplains and our chaplains like you are very present in the trauma unit and actually they do um, talk among themsel amongst themselves about it. I was surprised the richness of the dialogue that our chaplains have that was, was going on without me being a part of it, because there is a perception that we distance ourselves from it. But now that the, the word is out, you know, we do talk a lot about it. In fact, one of our chaplains who no longer works with us was in finance as a career, had a near-death experience, and became a hospital chaplain. Uh, excellent. And um, as far as conversations with colleagues, I didn't lose my job when I wrote the book. In fact, the first thing that happened is I became medical director after I wrote the book. So I took that as a positive sign uh, that trust was still there and that that had not been fractured. So my hope is that I can continue that conversation with my fellow physicians, nurse practitioners, nurses. Good. Thank, Thank you. you. Hello. My name is Kimberly Clark Sharp. Um, I just came up here to say, yay you. <laughs> in 1977, working as an intensive care unit social worker, mm -hmm. uh, I found a shoe on a ledge 
described by a patient who was undergoing resuscitation wow. at the time and spent until I found ions in utter aloneness mm -hmm. with a magnificent story and a shoe in my hand that's in our garage to this day. So I just want to say welcome to the fold. Mm -hmm. It's wonderful. It's terrific to meet you. I still think you're brave even though you got promoted to director and God bless you. Thank you. Hi, my name is Andrea Khoury. How was yoga? Uh, it was good, <laughs> thank you. Um, I sat with my experience for 25 years before divulging it, and I just had the thought when you were explaining that somebody was actually clinically dead, that that coincided with my thought that it wasn't a near-death experience. It was a death experience. Mm -hmm. My life completely changed, and I think that's the huge takeaway, is what it creates after the fact. And what it's created for me in 25 years is just incredible. So I wanted to ask you about that, about the shift, perhaps, from near-death experience to, in fact, an experience that completely transforms the balance of your life. Mm -hmm. I think that's the gift of a death experience. I think there's the potential for that transformation in near-death and full-death experiences. And part of that is, I, I think, a shared responsibility, not only with the patient, but with the caregiver. You know, how aware are we about what's going on with you? How safe do you feel and sharing with us what you experienced so that we can have a powerful conversation together that can facilitate not only your physical healing, but have a say-so in how you move forward with your life. Because many people, perhaps even you, as transformative as it was, it can feel pretty isolating. And I don't know if that was, that's what some patients share with me. Um, so my did, response yeah. to that, did that happen to you? Absolutely. It's not something that you can share. And also your whole perspective changes mm -hmm. on life. And, um, but from the clinical scientific point of view, there's so much science to show when a body dies. So that if we could accept that, in fact, it is a death experience, imagine how uh, it just changes the perspective of it. Mm -hmm. To me, anyway, it just completely... What was explained to me afterwards is that it was a lot simpler for me to die and then for me to come back into the same body with all these givens but be a completely different human being so that I could then really carry on the work I was supposed to do. Mm -hmm. That's how it was explained to me. Sounds like a pretty good explanation. Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Hi, my name is JP. Um, uh, I just first want to thank you for coming forward and uh, writing this. I know that's, uh, there, there's a lot of uh, trepidation in doing something like that. And so thank you to you and other people who have done that. And uh, I will maybe hold this. Um, I, I'm a mathematician, so I've, I've uh, spent a lot of my time uh, over my life trying to, I've had spiritual interests in trying to kind of knit the, uh, the worlds together, if you will, of spiritual versus physical. And, you know, it, it always seems to be bifurcated. We have those who say that, okay, it's all materialistic 
materialistically based and those who say that, no, you know, it's spiritual. Um, when did the two come together? And um, <clears throat> perhaps this is uh, not, not so much of a question as just a, an item to put out there. And uh, it, it's that um, as, as I go through and I, I watch YouTube videos and read about near-death experiences, I also watch the, the other half who, who wants to say that, no, you know, it's just because of the hypoxia and so forth. And um, there, there's a part of me that kind of uh, reacts with a little bit of fear that, oh, no, you know, they're figuring it out. <laughs> because every once in a while you come across something which is like, oh, okay, we figured out how out-of-body experiences work and so forth. But um, one of the things that I've, I've spent a lot of, lot of my time uh, over the years looking at is this idea of cause and effect. And uh, I think uh, we, we all walk around with uh, supposing that, oh, yeah, we, we know that A causes B. And when I turn the car, the car turns, the car doesn't turn, and then I turn the wheel, et cetera. We, we have this definite idea of what causes what in this life. But um, I, I just like to propose or, or to uh, perhaps others have said this, but I want to reinforce the idea that, you know, maybe it's the, the idea of causation is, is not so plain and neat as we think and is perhaps more of a, um, a concomitant concurrence of things, rather, so that, um, <clears throat> you know, even if at some point some physiology is discovered that, oh, such and such spikes occur and leaves a memory trace, et cetera, that um, it's, it's just as likely that the spiritual leaves a physical trace as it is that the physical causes some spiritual recognition and, and the obvious or, or perhaps the most uh, prominent um, occurrence of this is our own consciousness. We, we tend to have this materialistic explanation that, oh, the brain is doing such and such and giving rise to this, quote, illusion that I exist. But um, I, I think a lot of people here especially know that that's, that's not true at all. So um, it's just an idea, not necessarily question that. Well, even if they, quote, figure it out, that's really not figuring it out. It's, it's just a tying of the two ends together. And again, the spiritual leaves a trace in the physical, just as mm -hmm. certainly as the physical can leave a trace in the spiritual. So just want to leave that out there and free to comment as you wish. I would like to comment. I do wish. Okay. Um, I hope we do figure it out. And I think that if we figure it out, there's still the opportunity for it not to take away the magic and the transformative power of that experience because in as much as we think it may be a spiritual experience and probably is, it's also a human experience. And in the same way that we now understand the miracle of conception and birth and we're still blown away by it every single time, there's the potential for, with our growing understanding of consciousness phenomenon, that we can still hold that same awe, and it can still hold that potential. Understanding a phenomena shouldn't rob us of that ability to let it change us and transform us. I think you know, we, we don't have the science yet to fully understand what's going on. And so the tendency is to try to cram it into the science that we do know and try to fit it neatly into things that we do understand. And I think that too is a human experience, is a human instinct. Things that kind of fall out of the, the scaffolding of, of what we understand and what um, gives us context. If something's out of context, we, we try to, to grab it and incorporate it into what does give us context so that we can make sense of it. Because our instinct is if we see something we don't understand, 
we struggle to make sense of it. But you know, perhaps we don't have the science, perhaps we don't even have the capacity in these bodies to understand what really goes on. We might not have the brain for it. But if we do figure it out, I don't think that that necessarily means that um, we can let it rob the mystery for us and the ability to be transformed by it. That's my comment. Thank you very much. Thanks. Thank you, doctor, very much. I'm a recovering mathematician as well, <laughs> with training in military science and theology. Having had multiple near-death experiences, and you described my, my own very well, and I come to you now as a hospice minister turned funeral director, looking for what message we experiencers can bring to the healthcare profession. Um, I think uh, just that, your own experience. I think that those people, particularly those people who are near-death experiences, having the courage, our responsibility is to create an environment where you feel safe talking about it. Feeling safe talking about it furthers the dialogue. And the ability, no matter your profession, hospice, hospice, I mean, that, that's just like chaplains, that's a much more comfortable conversation. But I think one of the most important things is to continue to show up. Everybody who participates in this conversation, be it skeptic or believer, is to continue to show up and to have dialogue. And I think the more we talk about it, I think we're finding the more that we talk about it, the more comfortable we are talking about it, and the more comfortable we are talking about it, the further down the road we can get in accepting it. Thank you. Thank you, Doctor, for your wisdom and sharing and making people feel comfortable. Um, I just got this inspiration to talk about the science and the physical realm. I don't know, I'm not a scientist, so, but um, Dr. Barbara Brennan was a NASA scientist. Hands of Light was her book. Um, ancient times talk about the chakras and the energy field and the light and the sound. Is that the science that we're reaching for? It's already in picture form. It's already people learn how to heal with those modalities. Is, is that it's a your question, like, is that the science that the doctors could actually embrace? I think that, uh, I don't know the answer to that question fundamentally, but I have an observation. And again, it kind of hinges on what I said to, um, what I've said to others, is that there is a recognition that is slow in coming um, that is embracing other ideas. We have um, nurses in our facility that do healing touch. Mm -hmm. That never would have happened 10 years ago. Mm -hmm. So I think, you know, it's, it's like uh, extending a circle of comfort. You know, I'm uncomfortable outside of this circle, but I just barely noticed that you made that circle a little bit bigger. Okay, I'm uncomfortable with that. And, you know, constantly, you know, just slowly and deliberately and faithfully expanding the boundaries of the circle of conversation and modalities that we're comfortable with, there has to occur at some point an aha moment where we realize that things have been swirling around us all along. We're just now learning to recognize them. I can't wait for the day that everyone's working together in this field. 
<laughs> Thank you. Hi there. I totally enjoyed hearing what you had to say. And um, I'm the guy who was playing the music before you. Okay. Thank you for helping me get ready for the talk. Okay. Um, about two years ago, I started doing these meditation events. And because in my own meditation, I had experienced inner peace and that purple light, um, I didn't know it was possible to have other experiences besides that because that was my own experience. And from the first event that I did, at least five people in the room shared having an experience where they had spiritual travel and a conversation with one of their loved ones on the heavenly side, somebody who had already died. It was very surprising for me. Okay, And now, almost two years later, there's about 2,700 people at my events who have had that experience of either reconnecting with one of their loved ones or having an experience with one of the ascended masters. But the reason why I'm sharing this with you is because the people who come to my events, basically 80% of them have experiences reconnecting or with an ascended master. But 100% of the people in the audience who have had a near-death experience have one of those experiences. Hmm. So I just wanted to share that with you. Thank you for sharing that. And that actually brings up a very important point that we um, have a perception that certain phenomena of consciousness are only possible by happenstance. Mm -hmm. But there are plenty of people who explore uh, different modalities that can help bridge that divide between our physical reality and a non-physical reality. And music and sound are, those technologies are very intriguing um, uh, facilitators. They seem to kind of make that um, state a little bit easier to access. I actually, Scott Taylor, is very experienced in sound technology and is doing a workshop on it later today, uh, this week. Yeah, about um, exactly what you're talking about is that that is also, in, in as much as we are observing near-death experiences and what that means, there's also a parallel curiosity about is it something that's just spontaneous or can we facilitate touching a different part of ourselves, different part of our existence? Well, all the, all the religions talk about the inner light mm -hmm. and the inner sound, so they're all connected to the source. Thank you. We have time for one more question. You're quite the raconteur. Um, I just wonder if you could make some observations uh, about how you would approach somebody who's had negative, hellish, um, mm -hmm. quite the negative experiences. Mm -hmm. Happy to. I actually have had um, one patient who had a very traumatic uh, near-death experience where there was a lot of darkness and anger and, and discomfort that she interpreted as demons. I'm not qualified to interpret her experience, but what we were able to do was to talk about it, and she came to an understanding that there was a lot of parallel between what she experienced after death and some of the strife and anger and internal conflict that she was having in her own life, which makes me wonder, is that, does what we experience here inform our experience when we cross over. So I, I feel woefully unqualified to interpret any of these experiences, but that was my question coming away from talking with her about her negative experience is, is that something that we participate in creating? 
Lauren, in closing, could you tell us, you've told us so many wonderful things about adult critical care patients. Do you have any experiences with neonates or pediatric intensive care? Are your colleagues are sharing that with you? It took me one pediatric rotation to realize that I needed to stay clear of pediatric ICUs. I, I have incredible respect for people who deal with these tender lives and are able to navigate that, the emotions of that. I don't have experience with children. Um, we do have an intensive care unit uh, for neonates, for children on our campus, but wisely they don't let me in there. <laughs> My experience is with adult patients. Ladies and gentlemen, can I ask you to thank Dr. Lauren Bells for what she shared with us?